You're listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast, conversations between girlfriends who have the knowledge and information to educate and empower you before, during, and after a divorce. We are here to remind you that you're grown and you got this. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Getting divorced can be scary. It is especially scary when you don't understand or trust the financial information being provided by your spouse. Are they hiding money? Can it be traced? Is their income accurate? Do any of these sound familiar? Frankly, these may be the very questions that are keeping you up at night. Well, today we are going to get some answers to those very questions because we know you need the information, not just for sleep, but for peace of mind during the process. Our guest today, Kathy Johnson, is an expert forensic accountant and financial accounting leader with a broad range of experience, including serving as a forensic accounting expert witness, providing civil and criminal litigation support, business valuations, family law issues, including determining the marital standard of living and cash flow analysis. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So I want to start out with really just kind of understanding what is a forensic accountant? Great. I get that question quite a bit. And I like to say it's an interaction of accounting and the law. We utilize our accounting skills to help the litigation process on anything financial related. Wow. Okay. So see, I think there is this idea that it's some sort of different component, but there is an intersectionality between accounting and the law, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is then different than, say, a CPA. Is that right? Yes, it is. A CPA focuses primarily on taxes or putting together the books and uh, and or analysis where a forensic accountant, we have a specific scope that we're looking at. When I say scope, we take our direction from the attorney and the client in terms of what services you need versus us telling you what services you need. Interesting. Okay. So, is it possible then to have one who is a forensic accountant in the role because there is a specific scope, right? Here's the directive, but also have either whether it's the same person or a different person as a CPA kind of as a part of the overall support team? It is possible, however, not recommended. If you have a CPA who also is serving as your forensic accountant, and that person has to testify. Remember, that person might be forced to share information about your financial activities that isn't really necessary for the ongoing case. That's why it's advisable to have two separate CPAs. You might wanna have a CPA who is your forensic accountant was totally independent from your regular CPA who performs your taxes or prepares your financial statements or things of that nature. That's really helpful to understand. And I want to break that down a little bit because you mentioned the idea of testifying. And so when we think about a forensic accountant 
getting involved in the divorce. You mentioned that there is a scope that the client, lawyer, and forensic accountant then work together to put together whatever analysis we have, and, and we'll get to those in a minute, but it sounds like whatever information that the forensic accountant, whether it's a report or um, how they kind of put together their analysis, those things may be subject to disclosure as a part of the divorce. Is that right? Absolutely. The forensic accountant gets involved, can get involved in several different ways. One of them is we're engaged as a potential testifying expert witness. And so we do not have attorney client privilege or any privilege with the client. I always like to explain that to my clients. They're used to working with their attorneys yes. where they have attorney client privilege. Things that they say to their attorney is not open up for discovery by the other side. But when they're speaking with me as a forensic accountant, we do not have those privileges. And so anything that they say to me, and if I am asked those questions, I have to share that information with opposing counsel or the opposing party. And that's really important for people to understand, right? Because it is subject to that disclosure. And so going into working with a forensic accountant, it is critically important to know that whatever information, right, is disclosed or um, analyzed, the other side will in fact have um, access or, or privy um, to that same information, which is going to then maybe be different if you were, again, we were talking about working with a CPA, you're working with a CPA, they're preparing your taxes um, or putting together some financial statements, their information may not necessarily then be subject to disclosure, um, except if uh, certainly we've got some discovery rules and, and depositions and like, but as a general matter, at the outset, a forensic accountant, you know, going into it, this shall be subject to some sort of disclosure in how I got to my analysis. Is that right? That is correct. And I always all like to share that your CPA is working, you know, for you, you know, all CPAs are, the, our responsibility is to be open and honest about our work and only provide, you know, credible information no matter which situation we're in. But a forensic accountant, even though you may have engaged me, you are my client, my responsibility is to support my conclusion of whatever activities you've asked me to do, not necessarily to support your opinion, where the attorney's uh, responsibility is to support their client. And I like to share those two differences. My opinion may differ totally with your opinion. So I have to always support my opinion not necessarily if you and or your attorney agrees with me or not. So here's what's interesting about that. I have been in situations where um, it has come to our attention that the other side hired a forensic accountant. And then all of a sudden they decide, oh, we're not working with them anymore or we're not. And lo and behold, once, of course, we you know got the information, it came out that the opinion that the forensic accountant who is supporting their analysis, their information differs 
from what the client thought it should or that it would. And so they didn't necessarily want that uh, information uh, kind of brought to light. And so it's important to really understand, as you said, your job is to certainly support the information and your analysis by this is how we came to this, but it's not necessarily that that may in fact be with a client uh, either thought it was was going to be or should be. So you got to know going in, you've got to be very careful when you make uh, the decision to then hire a forensic accountant. Yes, absolutely. And specifically, if the at the initial stages of those engagement, that forensic accountant is hired to be an expert witness to provide testimony uh, on the stand. Now there is a there there are different services that forensic accountants uh, provide in that in that scenario where we are engaged by the attorney as a consultant and not an expert witness. In that case, and I have had many engagements in that situation where the attorney actually wants uh, the forensic accountant to kind of guide them, sometimes to let them know uh, if this is uh, if if this may be a serious issue. Gotcha. I've had situations where the attorney has consulted with me to see how much trouble maybe their client is in. And in that situation, I am not hired as a testifying expert witness. I am hired by the attorney simply to consult with the attorney. Therefore, our interactions, our discussions, our work papers are confidential. So what's key here is that when you're working with your lawyer and you are having the discussion about bringing on a forensic accountant, one of the things that we wanna make sure that you do is to get very clear as to what is the intention. So if it's, we wanna hire as a consultant, the attorney hires the forensic accountant as a consultant to um, understand, to better understand financial information or to figure out, hey, we might have an issue that's going to be different than in preparation, say, for trial, um, and we're hiring an expert to testify based on the information. So it's really, really important when we're working with counsel to understand, yes, this is this is the purpose behind working with this individual. Really helpful to know that. So let me understand then, or, or let's let our the listeners understand, you know, why would a person hire a forensic accountant, right? What are, you know, here we are in the midst of divorce. And certainly I would say that most people are concerned about the financial transactions or the goings on um, in their marriage, especially if you haven't been the person who's kind of been running the finances. Is that the reason to hire a forensic accountant? It's one of many reasons Primarily when we're looking at a divorce, there's several different issues. There could be a business. The couple has owned a business and that business maybe was started during marriage or pre-marriage. And the courts want to know, especially in the state of California, and there are nine what we call community property states, anything that was earned during the marriage is split 50-50. It is shared by both parties, no matter who's actually operating that business. Another reason is unreported income. 
during the marriage, it, it could be a two-year marriage or a 20-year marriage, any income that was earned during that marriage is considered community property shared equally by both sides. And many times during the income and expense declaration, some parties may not want to share where those funds are. You know, gotcha. when I call it unreported income, how did yes. they get that income? Where is it being derived from? So that's those are a couple of the primary reasons we get involved. And so what's, you know, to add on to, you mentioned uh, California being a community property state. Where I live in Illinois, we are equitable distribution, but certainly very similar in that you're a business owner and there are concerns about what's happening with the business, whether there's um, valuation whether there's some income. So, um, you know, questions about retained earnings. And so oftentimes we would bring in a forensic accountant who is a neutral. And I, and I, I say that loosely because you, you end up hiring, they're, they're kind of your expert and so you do hire them. But as we did discuss a moment ago, their allegiance and their commitment is to the data. And so while you did hire them, they are going to support the information um, that the numbers have told them to support. And so oftentimes we hear, I think my spouse has money in an offshore account, right? That that's a that's a big one, right? Or, you know, I I think that they're hiding money. Is money traceable? Can can we find the money? Most most of the time we can, although there are instances where we may not. Cash transactions are very difficult to trace. But if any at any given point in time those funds were deposited in a bank account or any financial institution, we trace those transactions to the ultimate disposition of those transactions. And it could be that one spouse deposited funds initially into a bank account and we, uh, uh, forensic accountants don't have subpoena power, but the attorneys subpoena those bank statements and we trace where those funds were transferred to. However, I have had situations where uh, clients have a lot of cash activities okay. and I've had clients to, or potential clients contact me and say, well, this is a highly cash related business. Um, you know, I, I think my spouse has hidden some cash somewhere. Those types of transactions are more difficult to trace, to find. However, comparables in similar types of businesses can be used to estimate the potential of earnings or the potential um, uh, income from those types of businesses. And we we forensic accountants can utilize those comparables, comparable businesses to come up with a conclusion. And our conclusion is based on the best information available to us. Not necessarily, we don't have that uh, responsibility of beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. We use the best information available to give our opinion. That's really helpful. So there's two pieces here, right? So the first piece, when we think about kind of tracing, right? And, and tracing really simply, you know, kind of think of the connect the dots, right? Yes. Um, yes. So it's here was the deposit, here was maybe a transfer, where did it go? And so what I hear you saying is 
look, if we've got the bank statements or we can kind of pinpoint, all right, we know 50,000 was deposited here. It looks like it then was transferred here. And so in some ways we can kind of, you know, follow the path by which the, the, the accounts have laid out. That's going to be different when you're dealing, as you mentioned, with cash, right? Um, at one point in time, you know, we used to always say cash is king. I don't know anymore, given that, you know, you go everywhere now and nobody wants to take cash. However, yeah. thinking about businesses, you mentioned that all may not be lost if you work, say, or if your spouse owns a cash business, because you have the ability to then look at other comparables. So other businesses who may operate in the same space to really support the analysis. I think that's really helpful, um, certainly for listeners to understand, because I think there's a lot of anxiety that comes with feeling like there is no hope in me ever figuring out kind of what's going on. There's no understanding, but at least we know well, either from a starting point, we'll figure out what we can trace. But if it is a cash business, there are some options that, say, a forensic accountant can use to really help get the information. So that's really helpful to know. So I'd like to then understand, you know, we're talking about these different kind of, you know, analysis and, and why one would use a forensic accountant. But tell me something um that when we think about kind of the standard of living, right? Our marital standard of living, how can a forensic accountant kind of help with an understanding, whether it's for the lawyers or the client or even the court to determine what's our standard of living or what has it been during the marriage? How is that done um, with a forensic accountant? Yes, of course, income is a part of it, but we don't stop at looking at the traceable income that came into uh, the marriage. We look at the expenditures, any credit card transactions. How are those credit cards being paid? Uh, in you know, utilities, of course, vacations. Uh, were there any huge asset purchases? We look at insurance. We want to see all insurance records because if you have anything of value, you probably would have insured it. And so we try to figure out how was that item initially purchased? And then it oftentimes leads us to additional sources of income that may or may not have been disclosed. And so when we talk about the marital standard of living, we want to look at everything, not just the day-to-day -day paying your rent or paying your mortgage, uh, vacations, clothing purchases, gifts that were made to other people. Uh, all of those are typical components in determining the marital standard of living. And generally, how long do you look back, right? So, you know, because we know, right, in, in especially if, if there's a concern about some divorce planning in the year leading up to divorce, either one person is trying to spend more to up that standard of living or one is trying to cut back on costs to, to decrease it. So when you think about maybe an average, what do you generally look at? For the marital standard of living, we're generally looking anywhere from three years uh, to one year prior to the, the date of separation. 
actually. Okay. And but we take we forensic accountants take our direction from the attorneys because sometimes the attorneys, both parties will work together to say, we want to look at activity for the last three years, or we only want to limit it to two years because, you know, I don't know, for whatever reasons the attorneys have gotten together, we take our, our direction there. I have been involved in cases where we have looked at 10 years because there are some heavy transactions going on and one party or the other wanted to understand where the money went. Uh, so uh, and a lot of it was was sent to family members out of the country. And, and so those types of things. That's really good to know. I think because oftentimes, right, again, when we think about this idea of anxiety and, and you know, the lead up to, you know, my spouse is all of a sudden saying we can't shop as much or things are changing, that really when you're working with your lawyer, talking to them and saying, okay, if we're going to have the financial, I'm um, sorry, the forensic accountant look at our finances, you know, maybe the last two years, but for example, right, COVID was just over the last couple of years. And so we know that that was a real or had a real big impact on many families. And so it is not at all impossible for lawyers to get together and say, hey, look, we're going to put, say, 2020 aside because we know that was an outlier. Let's maybe focus on 2021 forward or Let's look at 2018 to 2019. And, and so, you know, it is really a conversation to have with your lawyer about what makes the most sense, but certainly having this expert kind of weigh in and say, well, you know, my experience would say, let's look at maybe even further or, or draw this in. 10 years seems to be like a big range because so much can happen in 10 years. You are correct. And so that's one of the reasons we work very closely with the attorney because it's like cost benefit. I like to say that, you know, it's most most forensic accountants bill like your attorney does on an hourly basis. And so detailed tracing of transactions or activity can be very costly if the range of time you're looking at is vast, like 10 years. Uh, the one case that was a 10-year case, it was very expensive. It was a very contentious divorce, but the cost-benefit was there in terms of the, the amount of financial activity that was involved. Maybe it's not for when the funds are limited and you don't, you meaning you and your attorney, uh, feel like, you know, most of the activity or unreported income or uh, financial activity that, you know, you could benefit from happened really within the last two years, you know, within the last year. It also, it depends upon the courts. You know, what can you and your attorney uh, convince the courts should be the time frame that we need to look, look back at? I'm appointed uh, quite a bit as a neutral by the courts. And so, and it's called a 730, uh, evidence code 730 here in California, and I'm not representing either side where it really doesn't matter in my case if I'm representing either side because I am basically looking at the facts, but yes. I'm appointed by the courts and sometimes there are agreements, many times there are agreements uh, by the attorneys or orders by the court to say, I only want you to look at 2000. 19 and 2018, I don't want you to look at 2020 or 21 because of COVID. Those types of things are very often 
in today's cases because of COVID. You know, the idea of working with having the court, I, I've had the experience where courts say, I'm going to appoint someone because I need a better understanding, right? And 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 so they will appoint a neutral mm-hmm. for that very reason. Um, and oftentimes it has a lot to do, say, with say uh, business ownership. A business was started during the marriage, and there's some mm-hmm. questions about cash flow. There's also um, concerns about, um, you know, the what we'll call the intermingling of of personal and and business expenses that have supported the the family lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be very helpful. But there are, right, the other, what I would call the the um not fun, but those that people get very excited about when you think about, you know, what's happening. And so those would be like infidelity. So um in Illinois, we have where uh, there's the area of what we call dissipation and dissipation. Uh, there's money, marital money that's used for a non-marital purpose. That's a very nice way of saying, you know, you're spending money on a girlfriend. Also addictions, right? So gambling is, is I've had cases where we've got um, a lot of money that was being spent um, at a casino. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned uh, kind of cash transactions and and um, and so having a forensic accountant. So you've got non-marital expenses or maybe even uh, gambling. Um, those oftentimes are areas where people get very anxious and concerned about about the money. And so how can one who may not be able to afford the services of a forensic accountant, how can they start looking at the account statements or um, you know other documents to get a handle on what's going on and what their standard of living may be? Yeah, a lot of times the parties involved are the best sources, whether you uh, hire a forensic or not, you know Uh, or have a better sense of what's going on within your own given situation. So if you can get a hold of bank statements and just categorize where the money is being spent on the bank statement activity, it states uh, cash withdrawal. It might even state on there, this was a cash withdrawal at an ATM number two or ATM number 202 or the address. So categorize those things and look at how often are they trending? How often is your spouse taking out cash? Or um, if your spouse is, get a, if, if you can get copies of credit cards, credit card statements, credit card statements will tell you what was purchased. You can just start tracing those items yourself. And I've had many clients to do so. Actually, one of the clients who um, whose spouse was sending money overseas, she actually had copies of his bank records. And she is the one who helped me identify the names because uh, they were originally, his family was in Baharan. So she actually helped me identify the names of who money orders or whom money orders were being sent. Wow. See, she had that information. I wouldn't have known that, but you know, she knew his family members. And see, that's, well, and that's really important, right? Because you are your best advocate, right? And so if you can get or have access to 
the bank statements, the credit card statements. You really can, even when with working with whether it's the attorney, the forensic accountant, you really have the knowledge that they need to get from you because you're right. You would have never known the names of these individuals or, you know, maybe an address keeps popping up and you're like, well, you know, they seem to be taking money out of this ATM. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, the client could say, well, actually that's because it's right across the street from, you know, their dental practice, or it's around the corner from the apartment that I know that they bought for their girlfriend or whatever it is. So it's, it, that can be very helpful as a starting point to, as you've said, start charting out or writing down certain, yes, certain transactions. So we've talked a little bit about kind of the standard of living in that piece of it. And that touches a little bit on kind of a cash flow. But can you tell me the difference between, you know, the marital standard of living, which we've talked about, and then like a cash flow analysis? Yes, we typically prepare cash flow analysis for um, for alimony and or child support. And so when we think about cash flow, it's not just the income, the, the the earnings that came in for a certain individual. It's the income less uh, necessary expenses identified by the family law court in any state that you live in. Because, you know, a lot of people, we start with the tax returns. We, most forensic accountants want to start with the tax returns. Because for one reason, you're signing those tax returns under penalty of perjury. And so it is deemed the most credible information to start with. And then you have income less uh, taxable deductions. Well, when we talk about family law cash flow available for child support and or alimony, it's not necessarily the net income, your income less your taxable deductions. Many times we're adding back what we call non-necessary expenses for living. If if, if there was a a business, when I call non-necessary expenses, it could be those gifts that you're giving maybe coded to a charitable deduction. Some people um, some people give to charities quite a bit and they believe in it. However, did the spouse who would be eligible for uh, child support based on that net income, would that spouse have necessarily agreed with those charitable contributions? So we might add them back. They are, they are discretionary, what we call discretionary funds. So we add them back to that gross income, less your uh, living expenses, and then we're going to add back charitable deductions. And so the court at the end is making that allocation off of a higher net income number. That's really important for people to understand that there are certain areas that can get added back. And they're a lot more surprising than people think. I I know that one area that is oftentimes controversial deals with retirement savings and There is a difference between mandatory contributions. So you work for a company that has a pension plan. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those contributions are then mandatory. That's different than I'm setting aside on an automatic deduction, the 401k contribution or another IRA contribution. Oftentimes those things get added back 
when we look at available cash for support. And so it's really, really important to understand when we think about the cash flow analysis for determining child support or spousal support, that it is more than just here's the gross income and it's it's netted out by uh, your, your standard deductions, but it also does take into consideration certain addbacks, but it, it does give people the ability to also pay their bills. So yes. just because um, one has, uh, you know, a, what you would say high income. So, you know, say six figures, Mm -hmm. realistically, the court is going to look at, okay, what's the rent or what's the mortgage, you know, what are the utilities? And, and so thinking about what the true cash flow really is, um, is really important. But we do know that going from one household to two households, irrespective of your earnings, is is going to be a game changer for many families. It takes some adjustments. Let's we'll we'll say that. Um, so thinking about you talked about you know certain things that one could look at, and you mentioned that forensic accountants like tax returns. You know how important is it for a client to get you know their hands on the tax returns to really kind of understand? Okay this may be a roadmap in some way. How important is that for for a client to try to obtain? It's very important. And actually, whenever I get a new uh, family law engagement where I'm uh, analyzing or trying to calculate the marital standard of living or cash flow analysis, one of the, I always send out a document request list. And at the top is tax returns. I want to see both personal tax returns and any um, business tax returns if there's a business involved, because that is my starting point. You have signed that tax return, you and or your spouse have signed that tax return under penalty of perjury. And so within the court system, it is considered a um, a reputable uh, document to, to start with. I also want to see it over a three to a five year period because I want to see the trend. If one spouse has a job for set per se, I'd like to see the that the W-2 f- um, from their employment is actually matches the income that was reported on that tax return. I also want to look at the deductions. Are the deductions reasonable? I want to look at a trend. It helps me identify any inconsistencies. And many times people are being as honest as possible on their tax returns. And that's a great thing because it helps us to help the attorney figure out, is it worth going after some um, issue that either spouse brought up may be a problem. We're matching tax return data with employment data, with bank account data. We're utilizing different sources to gain a full, uh, gain confidence that the number we're reporting is as close to accurate as possible, not just one source. So it's putting all the pieces together, right? So we're starting with the tax returns, which as you've mentioned, you know, this is the gold standard or it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be because Mm -hmm. it is in many ways, the affidavit you're attesting to the fact that, you know, this information is accurate. And so in reliance on that, 
you have forensic accountants or even individuals who Mm -hmm. can point to then, okay, are there any now discrepancies between what was reported on the tax return versus what we're now seeing in other areas? And those other areas then being, of course, the income documents and your other account statements, because all of those things in many ways should all together put together the puzzle, right? They're each their own individual pieces, but together should put together the financial puzzle that is the marital estate or or an individual's income. So that's really, that's really, really helpful. And so, you know, when you think about your girlfriends, right? Because I I think it's always important when we think, you know, um, what am I saying to my girlfriends who might be in this uh, process or considering this process and they have concerns about just understanding, um, you know, finances, Mm -hmm. what do you say to them as a starting point before it's hire a forensic accountant? Because we're going to get there, but Mm -hmm. what do you say to them as a starting point? So gather as much documentation that you can gather on your own relating to bank statements, relating to financial statements, and relating to the household expenditures. Because, you know, many times one party will control the checkbook per se. Yes. But if you're the outside party not controlling, get access to copies of all of those transactions. You may not understand what they mean. That's when you go to your accountant and your forensic and or your forensic accountant to help you understand what it means. Um, the most minute bank statement might look differently to someone who understands the meaning behind those transactions. And you don't have to hire just because you've gathered all of this. Maybe all of a sudden you've worked with your attorney and you've decided I don't need a forensic accountant. But if you do need it, then you can't go back and get it. Right. The the one case that I shared that you know, took 10 years and the the party was sending money uh, overseas to his family members. His wife had uh, had copies of the the checkbook, you know, how we used to, we don't do this anymore. When we wrote checks out and you had a copy of that check, that's what we primarily worked from because when he, when, when, when her husband left the household, he left all of that documentation And we worked from that documentation to start our analysis. And there was like about five years worth of that type of documentation as to where he that's really helpful, right? And and so very helpful. It's don't discount the information that you don't think that you have, because you're right. You as the expert were able to say, okay, no, we can actually use this. This is Mm -hmm. super helpful. Mm -hmm. And so even if you are, you know, the thought is. I don't have access to our tax returns, Mm -hmm. or I only have an old bank account statement, grab what you can or get what you can. And, you know, and and certainly experts can work with that. That's really helpful. But I also think that if you have, um, you know, your own credit card or your own debit card, or if your experience has been, well, I pay the bills. Mm -hmm. I don't know um, what the account looks like, right? And, and and for many families, that's how it is. It's, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I, I pay the bills, but uh, my spouse is the only one who actually has, you know, access to the actual bank account. That's helpful too. That's okay too. Very helpful. Because, 
you know, as we've talked about marital standard of living, mm-hmm. you can certainly say, well, here's the utility bills or here's the pool guy or here's what we, because you know that information. So any and all information can be very helpful, whatever you have um, as a starting point. So thinking about hiring then a forensic accountant, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are instances where you are going to need that additional analysis or support at, you know, say trial or even in preparation for mediation. When you think about hiring a forensic accountant, are there certain things you want to look for or uh, any red flags that might be of concern when you think about bringing in an expert? Yeah, you want to make sure you at least talk to that person initially and find out what their process is going to look like. If it's a tracing case, if it's a business valuation case of a family-owned business, at least get an understanding of that process. There are many forensics who may not want to work with someone who doesn't have an attorney because forensic accountants, we are not attorneys. And so people who don't have an attorney sometimes want to or want us to provide information that we that's not within our expert wheelhouse. I'm always constantly, even if my clients have an attorney saying, I am not an an attorney, you might want to make sure you check with your attorney first. So I would say the first process is even if you just get a consultation from an attorney, see if the attorney feels like, believes that a forensic accountant would be helpful. That's That would be a good starting point. And then you talk to that forensic and see if they are willing to just, you know, give you, you know, 15 minutes to, to kind of discuss what the process might look like. Get an understanding of what it might cost. A tracing engagement it can go anywhere from $5,000 to $50,000 because or more. Tracing, I, mean, I got a client right now who spent $180,000 on a divorce because it was, um, it was a very high net worth client and there was a lot of financial activities involved. So you want to make sure you, you understand uh, that your retainer that a forensic accountant might ask for is really no indication of total cost because we don't know what we don't know. You know, we we gather information and then we follow the leads from that information. And we don't know if it's going to take us 10 hours or um, a thousand hours. So when you are speaking with that forensic, you know, you might want to say, you know, here, you know, what is your retainer? What is your hourly rate? You you definitely want to get that. But that doesn't mean anything. Right realistically, my hourly rate can be, you know, $800 an hour. But if it's going to take me, you know, it might take me 20 hours versus somebody who has an hourly rate of $500 an hour. And it could, you know, that total bill at the end of the day could be larger. So look at the experience, see if that person has had any experience in the areas where you and your attorney feel like you're going to tackle your case. I say, I always add the you and your attorneys. We are not, we forensic accountants are not attorneys. We don't have subpoena power for one thing. So with every engagement letter that I send out, I'm also sending out a documentation list. I call it my document request list. So that upfront, you know the types of documents that I'm asking for. 
And if you can't get that documentation, be upfront about it because you don't want to waste your money. Uh, forensic accountants, we have a lot of leeway. Uh, we are not fact witnesses. We are forensic accountants. We're expert witnesses. And so within the courtroom, we are allowed to talk about things that we didn't specifically see ourselves. But these are the things that we utilize in order to come up with our conclusion. This is data documentation that we utilize to come up with our, our conclusion. However, we need something. We can't uh, pull numbers out of the air and say, well, based on my conversation with the client, he or she spent, you know, $1,000 a month doing, you know, whatever. I mean, I wouldn't go in and testify to what my client told me unless I had some type of documentation to back that up. So that's really important. And I want to underline that, that forensics do not have subpoena power. And what that means is that they can't go say to the bank, or to the IRS, or to Venmo, um, and, and demand the information. So if you are not able to get the information directly, then you have to work through your attorney who has the ability to issue a subpoena. And that's critically important because as Kathy, you've shared with us, without the information, right, really you're spinning your wheels as well. And so you don't want to spend that time or that money knowing that you don't don't have anything to base it on. Right. Um, because if there's one thing that we all know as experts is nobody's relying on anybody's word, right? I need to see the actual evidence, right? That, yes. That's where the idea of having receipts come from. Mm-hmm. I need to have the receipts because yes. otherwise now we have a credibility issue. So yes. really important Um, Thank you very much for sharing that and explaining that at a minimum, gather what you can, start Mm -hmm. piecing together what you Mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. And then if it looks like, hmm, this is really an area where things are complicated or there are a lot more questions than answers Mm -hmm. when I start trying to piece things together now it makes the most sense to kind of transition and work with a forensic accountant. And as we shared earlier, there are a variety of ways to do that, Mm -hmm. whether in the consulting kind of space, when you're working with your attorney or as a testifying expert based on, um, you know, the information that you're looking to have kind of examined or or shared. So very, very helpful. Kathy, I cannot tell you how insightful and helpful this has been for me. And I have, you know, worked with forensics for a long time, but it's always great to, um, you know, have a conversation and really um, have the reminders of, you know, here is why um, you have a forensic accountant involved. Here are the things that you can do yourself to get the process going or to later then support the forensic and then also knowing that the the real crux of the whether it's the appointment or <laughs> whether it's the engagement is really the tie between the law and um and the financial world. So thank you so much for for sharing this information. It has been so great chatting with you and you know we'll hope that you'll come back and and educate us even more and maybe next time we spend time talking about fraud and what really um what fraud really is in the context of a divorce process my pleasure and thank you very much for the invitation 
Thank you for listening to the Grown Girl Divorce Podcast. Remember, though you may be going through a difficult time, you're grown and you got this. Please be sure to tell your girlfriends about us. Follow us on Instagram at Grown Girl Divorce and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on any new conversations. The conversations on this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to substitute working directly with a lawyer. These episodes are not to be used as a basis to support or defend any legal action and transcripts or recordings of the podcast may not be used for any purpose without the direct written permission of the podcast owner.